Welcome into Real Pod Wednesdays. Dan Hope joined by Andy Anders on what has been quite a week for Ohio State across all sports. Really, just a great week for Ohio State. A big win for the women's basketball team at the Schottenstein Center over number two Iowa on Sunday. We'll talk about that later in the show. Uh, lots of lots of Ohio State teams having success over the past week. The wrestling team beating two ranked opponents. Men's volleyball moving up to number one in the country after knocking off a previous number one UCLA. Uh, women's hockey still number one in the country. They're rolling. Uh, men's and women's swimming and diving beating Michigan. So really a great week across the entire Ohio State Athletic Department. But, of course, football is usually our main focus on this show, and it has been a big week for the Ohio State football program as the Buckeyes landed two more marquee transfers, both from Alabama and Caleb Downs, the uh, national freshman of the year last year, transferring to Ohio State to join the Buckeyes secondary. And Julian Sayan, the number one quarterback in the recruiting class of 2024, transferring to Ohio State after just a couple weeks in Tuscaloosa. So two massive additions for Ohio State in what has been uh, really a spectacular start to the offseason for the Buckeyes. They've attacked this portal. I mean, I, I think that's pretty safe to say. I, I don't know if there's any other team out there that's that's hit it harder. Ohio State, you know, this was a massive addition, you know, uh, obviously Julian Sayan too, but Caleb Downs is more of the right now impact, right? Because we still expect Will Howard likely to be the starter this year. Caleb Downs is where you really look at and go, wow, you added probably the best safety in the country to a defense that we already expected to be the best in the country. Um, with all the guys you get back from last year, you know, we talked about that a lot on the last episode. And, you know, I, I think of all the additions Ohio State has made, this is the biggest. When you watch Downs on tape, it doesn't take a football savant to realize how special this kid is. Uh, you know, 107 tackles as a freshman safety, Dan. It's such a ridiculous stat that you almost want to laugh. It, it like. Just having 100 tackles as a safety is pretty phenomenal. That doesn't happen a whole lot. Uh, but to do it as a freshman, obviously one, you know, Sean Alexander, freshman of the year uh, for his efforts there, had a really high PFF grade, just really a can't miss guy. And, you know, the one question mark on this defense outside maybe Will Linebacker was free safety. With Josh Proctor leaving, you kind of had a battle that might have occurred between Malik Hartford and Jihad Carter at that spot You know that was going to be coming up. But now you have a guy who's the best in the country at the position uh, instead of having to battle it out there. You know, And uh, I think it speaks to the overall aggressive transfer portal strategy of day not being satisfied this offseason. And I think it's something that he's needed to do uh, because as we've talked about many times before, this is kind of a make or break year for him. And he, he's certainly throwing all the chips in with these um, transfer additions, not just Caleb Downs, but also lo loading up for the future with Julian Sayan, uh here recently and all the other additions they've made beforehand. 
Yeah, I talked about it a couple of weeks ago about how Quinchud and Judkins felt like the kind of power move that we were waiting to see from Ohio State in the transfer portal. And these two moves certainly qualify as power moves. I mean, especially Caleb Downs, I think. I mean, most people thought he was going to go to Georgia when he entered the transfer portal. And Ohio State beats out Georgia for a player who was a second team All-American last year at Alabama. And like you said, I mean, Ohio State's defense, even without Caleb Downs, was already going to be really, really good for next season. To then go and add him to that load of defense, I mean, that's a power move. I mean, I think you talk about it not only being the biggest transfer portal move for Ohio State this year, it might be the biggest transfer portal move Ohio State's ever made. I think it's right there, maybe 1A and 1B with Justin Fields. I mean, Justin Fields, of course, was a massive win for Ohio State in the transfer portal, but Justin Fields was still unproven at that time. Like, we all thought when Ohio State got Justin Fields that he was going to be a star, and he was. But Caleb Downs is already a star. He is already played at a superstar level. Guys like him aren't supposed to enter the transfer portal, and that's kind of a new world of college football that we're in in 2024. And obviously, if Nick Saban doesn't retire, Caleb Downs is probably still playing for Alabama right now. So Ohio State can thank Nick Saban for Caleb Downs and Julian Sane. Uh, both those guys would probably still be playing for Alabama, if not for, I think, uh, certainly, I think uh, Julian Sayan would still be playing for Alabama. I mean, he enrolled at Alabama. Literally, his first day of classes at Alabama was the day Nick Saban retired, and that ultimately led to him leaving Alabama just over a week later. But for Ohio State to be ready to pounce, and obviously, you know, we talked about the NIL impact of this last week, that that's a big factor in this once again of Ohio State, you know, having its ducks in a row from an NIL standpoint, that when a guy like Caleb Downs entered the portal, they were ready. They, they, you know, they didn't have to scramble. They, they obviously knew it was a possibility from the time that Nick Saban retired that Alabama's top players could look to the portal. And so they were ready when Caleb Downs entered the portal, they were ready to make their recruiting pitch. I believe it was the next day after he entered the portal, Ryan Day, Tim Walton, and like three other staffers went to his house to make an in-home visit with Caleb Downs. So Ohio State was ready to pounce. And, and that's what you have to be able to do in these situations. You can't sit around and wait and see if the guy's interested in you. You got to go for it. And that's exactly what Ohio State did, particularly in the Caleb Downs situation. You know, my understanding of the Julian Sayan situation is that Julian actually reached out to Ohio State when he entered the portal uh, that he wanted to play for Ohio State. And Ohio State actually had to make a decision there on whether it wanted to add Julian Sane because Ohio State already had a really good quarterback room with Will Howard, who, like you said, is still the likely starter for the 2024 season with Devin Brown and Lincoln Keenholz returning and then already signing a five-star quarterback in the 2024 class in Air Nolan. And that could have been a valid reason to say, it. we don't want to bring in another guy in that class and potentially upset the room that we already have. But I think in the case of Julian saying, ultimately Ryan day and the staff decided this guy's just too good for us to pass up. If we have a second chance to get this guy and he wants to be here, we can't pass up a second chance to bring him in. 
yeah, if you think he's, you know, going to be the next guy, the the someone even better than Air, perhaps, then I I think it makes sense to do it. Um, you you do get concerned about the shakeup that it could provide the quarterback room with, but um, and and maybe even the message for the future that it might send to you know prospective recruits. You know, you kind of made a commitment to Air, right? You accepted his commitment. He signed a letter of intent, and now you're going out to get somebody who's going to compete with him to play. But, you know, I, I think it's just the modern world of college football. If it, This would be unthinkable a few years ago to, to even, like, consider, what? <laughs> Ohio State had a five-star quarterback and they're going to go get a transfer who's another five-star quarterback? But, yeah, that's just the modern age of college football. And I think with the landscape of it, how free players are to move about, how... You know, it's sort of changed to be that it's, it, we're moving more and more toward that sort of NFL look of, of player freedom, transfer portal, kind of a lot like free agency, right? Loyalty isn't as important as it used to be. It's just the fact of the matter, I think. You, you have to be aggressive in building, not just for now, but for later, which is really what the Julian Sayan move is. It's not just, oh, we're stocking up for the 2024 season here. This is a move for 2025 uh, and getting someone that's going to compete with Air. Every indication from Air right now, too, is that he's willing to compete with Julian and try and prove that he's the better player. He can win the starting job. But, um, you know, we'll see how that plays out over the long term here. I I do think it's also funny, Dan, uh, you mentioned, you know, obviously, the NIL, Ohio State getting its ducks in a row, the dichotomy between the first year or two of NIL and seeing Ohio State lose out on some recruitments, lose out on some transfers, and how much the football world was kind of mocking Ohio State in some of these instances, how the fan base felt pretty like dejected that they could lose guys to this. And now you've got everyone on Twitter that isn't an Ohio State fan kind of saying, oh, Ohio State's buying all their players. It's Bagman. It's just, you've got SEC Twitter complaining that Ohio State is buying its Twit players, Dan. How how backward is that from what it was a year or two ago? It's it's crazy. It's a crazy thing. And, uh, you know, I, I think that it's obviously something you want to see in this modern age if you're an Ohio State fan because, look, it's a part of the game now until some regulations, guardrails get put in place. Ohio State needs to go out and take advantage of this as much as they can. And if it means, hey, spending using our big donor base, weaponizing it and putting some top dollars down to go get these guys, then, you know, I don't think there should be any qualms about that. That's just how it is now. I've said that several times in this segment here, but uh, I really I, I really believe that this was exactly what Ryan Day needed to do and um, exactly what he did. So, yeah, great, great positive trends, just even for the long-term future of the program under him. Yeah, and I think it shows the sense of urgency that he's feeling going into this year. I mean, you just look at everything that's happened over the last few weeks between the moves they made in the transfer portal, you know, coaching staff changes, you know, bringing in Bill O'Brien this past week to be, you know, the head coach of the offense we think is going to be kind of how he's going to function and take those offensive play calling duties off of Ryan Day's plate. I think all of that kind of leads back to the the fact of this is a super important year for Ryan Day, and I think he feels that sense of urgency that the fans do. That we got to beat Michigan this year. We 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 got to you know get back to achieving our major goals. And we you know we you know obviously I mean now you look at this roster they built. You know that 
you know, I don't love the term national championship or bust because like, what does that really mean? But I definitely think this is a team that is going to go into this off season. You know, they started winter workouts this week. They're going to go into this off season with, this is our year. We, we got to go win a national championship. You have all these guys who could have been early round NFL draft picks who came back for their senior year. Ryan Day owes it to those guys to do everything he can to try to build a national championship team around them. I mean, you have, you mean those guys, yeah, they're getting NIL money. Yeah. You know, it's not like they're losing out on money completely by returning to Ohio state, but you know, those guys are putting off the opportunity to go play in the NFL because they believe that Ohio state can achieve all those goals in 2024. So Ryan day owes it to those players to do everything he can to try to put them in position to win a national championship. And I think that's probably the other side of this that doesn't get talked about enough when we talk about, you know, the loyalty aspect of all this is, yeah, I think when we, when we think about the transfer portal, a lot of times we think about the loyalty to the Dallin Hayden or a CJ Hicks or a Malik Hartford, who's maybe, you know, getting pushed out of a starting role or a bigger role this year because they're bringing in a transfer. But there's also the a- aspect of, you know, all these players who came to Ohio State did so with the idea that they're going to compete for national championships and that they're going to be playing with the best of the best. And so Ryan Day also owes it to the players to try to build the best possible team around them. And I think, you know, that's exactly what Ohio State has done so far this offseason. The job's not done yet. You know, I think, I mean, I mean, job's only started in terms of actually preparing for the season. You know, it's great to win the offseason title in January, but now you got to go actually win the games that matter in September through December. So this is just the beginning. And even in terms of the offseason tasks, you know, there's still some important items on that to-do list. I still think that Ohio State should be in the market and, and wants to land another transfer offensive lineman. I think at this point, that's more likely to happen after the spring than it is to happen now. You know, Ohio State's now in the third week of its spring semester. It becomes harder even just to bring guys in at this point. And I don't think there's anybody left out there right now that Ohio State is really seriously pursuing at this point. And so I would still expect that they're going to try to bring in another starting caliber offensive lineman through the portal, but I'm not sure that's going to happen before spring at this point. Obviously, Ohio State still has one more coaching staff vacancy to fill. We'll see. Do they bring in another defensive line coach as a potential successor to Larry Johnson? Do they promote James Laurinaitis? Those appear to be the two options at this point. We'll see when Ohio State ultimately makes a move there one way or the other. But by and large, I mean, this offseason really could not have started off any better for Ohio State because, I mean, you look at that roster, you know, other than, again, maybe the offensive line, you you feel like they've done everything they needed to do to really plug what those biggest holes were going to be. And, I mean, especially, you know, we we, we don't want to beat the point to death because we've talked about it on the last two episodes, too, about how good this Ohio State defense can be this year. But especially on the defensive side of the ball now, you plug Caleb Downs in there, I mean, that lineup is 
loaded. Absolutely. You know, running running through it again, just one more time for the listeners. And in, in case, you know, you haven't haven't been around the last couple of weeks here, you got Jack Sawyer and JT Tuimolo at defensive ends, Tyleek Williams and Ty Hamilton, defensive tackles. Uh, middle linebacker will be Cody Simon or Mike Linebacker. Now, we project that Sonny Styles is going to move to Will. That move isn't confirmed, but it makes even more sense now. He's our favorite to start there, I guess you could say. Cornerbacks, Denzel Burke, Davis, and Igbenosin. You'll have Jordan Hancock back in that nickel position. Uh, and I think that's easily the best corner trio in the country there. Uh, you've got Caleb Downs now at free safety and Lathan Ransom rounding it out, coming back as the most experienced hand on that defense at strong safety. Uh, and it's again, it's a lineup that just the top to bottom I, there's not a player, a position you point to and go, oh, they're deficient in that area. Oh, you know, they're there. They have all American guys at each level, potentially linebacker, maybe a little more suspect in, in having an all American player. But when you have so much talent, that's going to be around them. The secondary in particular between downs and again, what I think is going to be the best cornerback group of cornerbacks in the country this year. Denzel Burke might be the best individual corner. He's going to be in that conversation. And it's just there's there's so much about this defense to like. And yeah, I've said it. I've said it multiple times at this point. It's got generational potential and the likes of which we haven't seen. And I think Caleb Downs just took it to that echelon, made it a lot more real in terms of like better than just the best defense this year, but the potential to be one of the best defenses college football has seen since like maybe 2021 Georgia, like th those kinds of conversations are now what are really going to be happening with the addition of downs. Um, I think something else that spurned on and, you know, referenced this a little bit by the addition of downs is that move of Sonny Styles to Will Linebacker, because there's really not another starting spot open for him. You know, Downs is going to come in and be the free safety, and I think they'll move him around the defense. Alabama moved him around the defense this year, did some different things with him. He's such a versatile, complete athlete that you almost can't afford not to try, you know, using him in different spots. And Jim Knowles has rotated his safeties plenty, but he's going to be the starter at free safety more than likely. Lathan comes back, plays the position he's played the last two seasons, which is that bandit spot, that strong safety spot. And then you have Jordan Hancock at the nickel. And obviously Sonny rotated with Jordan there the first half of this past season, but it's... Jordan is such a good has acclimated to that spot so well. And I don't think you want Sonny to be in a position where he's just a rotational piece. He's still an incredible talent, an incredible athlete. And I think you and I agree, obviously, the best use of his skill set is at that Will linebacker spot. Now that he's added some weight, kind of, you know, maybe not quite as fast as he once was, but maybe a little more strong physically and with, you know, under that Mickey Marotti strength training program and all of that. So, you know, I, I think this move of acquiring downs has also kind of solidified and really added even more credence to the fact that Sonny Styles should be a Will linebacker this year. Yes, I mean, Sonny's too talented not to be in the lineup somewhere. And that's really the only spot that's open for him at this point, at least in terms of a base defense starting lineup. And so I think it makes the most sense because, you know, we, we heard, you know, at the start of the whole portal window, there was a lot of chatter that Ohio State was looking for a linebacker. And then that that chatter kind of faded out. You know, it didn't seem like Ohio State pushed as hard for attack at Curtis as maybe people thought they would. And I think this is 
probably part of the reason why. Now, again, we haven't had a chance to talk to Jim Knowles or any of the coaches since the end of the season. And so we'll have to see what they say about this whenever they are made available to the media again. But it, it just seems like all the puzzle pieces are are fitting toward Sonny Styles playing that will linebacker spot. Now, to your point, I, I think another advantage of this defense is that I think there are a lot of players who can be versatile chess piece kind of players for this defense. Caleb Downs can certainly be that. Sonny Styles can be that. You know, Jordan Hancock, we've seen him play inside and outside. He can be that. Lathan Ransom, I mean, he's a guy he can play in the box. He can play deep. I think he can be that. CJ Hicks is a guy who I think certainly has the potential to be that, whether that be linebacker, edge rusher, whatever you want to do with him. So I think there's a lot of different pieces on this defense that you can move around to create different looks, to match up with different opponents from week to week. And so, you know, you look at that starting 11 and it's like, damn, like that's one heck of a starting 11. But there are different variations off of that base defense that you can create too. And I mean, you just look at the depth of this defense. And now, you know, it's one of those things where it's like, you know, I hate speculating about transfers, but it's also like, do we know that the depth is still going to look this good after the spring? We don't because there's going to be another portal window. I mean, you have a team like Alabama out there that needs more guys because of all the guys they've lost. You figure they're going to be active, like trying to get guys in the post spring window. You know, who knows what else will happen in the post spring window. And so, you know, it's not a guarantee that all the guys you have now are still going to be in your roster in September. But if we assume for now that they all will be, I mean, if you just look at that second team defense lineup, I mean, the way I would project it, you'd have Caden Curry and Kenyatta Jackson Jr. at defensive end, Hero Canoe and Caden McDonald at defensive tackle, CJ Hicks and Gabe Powers at linebacker, Jermaine Matthews Jr., Calvin Simpson Hunt at corner, Lorenzo Styles Jr. at nickel, Malik Hartford and Jihad Carter at safety. I mean, those are a lot of guys that if we were if, are talking even two months ago before we knew all the guys that were going to come back and before we knew they were going to add Caleb Downs, a lot of those guys were guys we were projecting were going to be starters for Ohio State in 2024. And now that's your second line. So the depth of this defense allows you to do a lot of things too, assuming that all those guys stick around. Absolutely. You know, and these are guys that not only did we talk about them as starters, there are some names that you listed there that could have emerged as some of the best players in the Big Ten on defense, some of the best players in the country, even on defense. I think Jermaine Matthews Jr. might be the top uh, name in that regard. I mean, you talk about how many how many teams in college football can claim to have a guy like that coming off the bench? You know, we look, you look at what Jermaine is and his extreme talent, what he did in his spots playing as a freshman against Penn state. It's really mystifying, I guess you could say to look at the, this group of second teamers and like, I'm really high on Kenyatta Jackson Jr. and Caden Curry. I think both those guys are fantastic defensive ends entering their third years, but they're going to be the backups on this team. I, I think that Malik Hartford is someone that, you know, the coaching staff is super excited about at that safety position, but he's going to be on the bench. You know, Jahad Carter obviously had those productive years at Syracuse, had some injuries, maybe had some other stuff that kept him off the field this year and also just wasn't 
beating out Josh Proctor for that spot with how Josh Proctor emerged. But, you know, still a guy with a lot of experience that's an incredibly valuable piece to have off the bench. You know, if you talk about Sonny Styles moving to Will Linebacker, you have a former five-star prospect entering his third year, C.J. Hicks, that you're going to be stopping in the starting lineup at least. They might find other ways to get C.J. on the field, or maybe he beats out Sonny for that position, who's to say? But that's, I mean... One of those guys is probably going to come off the bench or be a rotational piece. There's so much talent behind that starting group. I I mean, they can afford to even lose a guy or two you fill in, and there's really not going to be a huge drop-off for the defense as a collective when you look at the pieces that they have backing up this elite, elite starting bunch. Going back over to the quarterback position, I think it's going to be really interesting to see how Ohio State manages the reps at quarterback this spring. Because as we've both said, we expect Will Howard to be the starter. You would expect that Will Howard is going to get the majority of first team reps during spring practices. But now you've got five mouths to feed going into spring practice. And that's, I mean, we've seen springs where they had two quarterbacks on scholarship. They're going to have five quarterbacks on scholarship going into the spring. And so when you start thinking about the storylines we're going to be watching in spring practice, that that's right up there for me is just how are they going to manage this quarterback situation? And will, you know, obviously we're not going to be there for every practice. Hopefully we'll get to watch a few of them and obviously we'll see the spring game. Will how they manage the quarterbacks this spring maybe kind of give us an idea of how things stack up for the future? Or, you know, will it give us an idea of who maybe they think is going to enter the portal. You know, it's it, it's it's a very, very interesting situation to manage because, you know, you don't bring in a guy like Julian. I mean, first of all, like if, if I was to predict who the Ohio State starting quarterback will be in 2025, I would predict it will be Julian Sayan. Would you agree with me, Andy? I would, yes. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, I think, you know, you don't bring in a guy of Julian Sayan's caliber and, you know, potentially upset the balance of your room if you don't think that he's probably your next starter after Will Howard. So uh, I, I do think that he's the front runner to start in 2025. Now, you know, does that mean that I rule out the possibility that if Aaron Nolan sticks around, that he could beat out Julian saying no, not at all, because Aaron Nolan's a really talented quarterback too. And I mean, Julian saying, I mean, he, he, he's been a college student at two different colleges now for a combined two weeks or so. So, uh, you know, y- you have to see if he's going to actually live up to the hype, but you don't, you don't make that move. If, if you aren't convinced that he, he's a guy that's probably going to be the guy in the future. And so you would think that, you know, he's going to get a significant share of those second team reps this spring. How do they divvy it up? Among the rest of the guys, you know, do you, do you give Devin and Lincoln a significant share of the reps based on the fact that they are the only returning guys and, uh, you know, as a nod to them for, you know, sticking around and still being here? Or do you look, do you want to give those reps to the five-star freshmen knowing that, you know, Devin and Lincoln are going to have decisions to make after the spring anyway about whether they really have a path to being the future starter at Ohio State. So 
it's a good problem to have. It's a good problem to have to have five quarterbacks who are all very talented on your roster. It's a good problem to have that you got to now make the number one quarterback from a recruiting class of 2024 fit into your quarterback room. But it is also a delicate situation to manage because, you know, you I don't think either of us expect that Ohio State is still going to have all five of these guys on the roster in September. It's it's just not it's not a situation that would really make sense for everybody because there wouldn't be enough playing time and enough practice reps to go around. And you'd have to think that a couple of these guys m- might see the writing on the wall and say, it's best for me to move on now and go somewhere where I have a chance to, you know, whether it be compete for a starting job this year or, or put myself in firm position to be the starter next year. You know, I, I would expect some attrition from the room after the spring. You know, I think if you're Ohio State, if you can keep four of these guys on your roster for 2024, you'd be very happy. If you can keep three of them, you'd be okay. If you lose three of them, then you have a problem. Then, then you have a, a significant issue of quarterback depth. And so it, it's a delicate situation that you have to manage carefully because ideally you, you, you don't want to lose more than one guy. If you lose two, you'd be okay, but you don't want to lose more than one ideally. And you know, it's hard. You, you just don't know what's going to happen because, you know, I remember when Justin Fields came in five years ago and when he came in, you know, all the other quarterbacks in the room were saying all the right things. Oh yeah. You know, we're happy to have him here. We're, 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 we're just here to compete and all that. But then eventually, by the end of the spring, you lose Tate Martell, you lose Matthew Baldwin. So you, it's easy to say the right things now while you still have a chance to compete. But based on how things go in the spring, the odds are going to increase that guys are going to see the writing on the wall and go somewhere else. So it's a very delicate situation to balance for Ryan Day and for Bill O'Brien. It's a good problem to have, but it's still uh, something that is going to take um, some some good roster management from Ohio State. Right, and it gets exacerbated if the guys that stay outside of Will Howard are freshmen. You know, if it's the two that transfer out are Devin and Lincoln, or if, you know, three transfer out and the one left is Julian Sayan or Aaron Nolan, you don't want a freshman as your only option to be a backup. You want someone with some experience in the offense, someone who knows how to run it. You know, as talented as Julian and Ayer are, they don't know this offense yet. They haven't had the experience and the implementation. And they'll get some of that in the spring and the fall, of course. But, you know, it's it's very rare for true freshmen to be successful at quarterback, to start at quarterback, to compete at quarterback. Um, because, And especially in a system like Ryan Day's that has so much on a quarterback's plate. Uh, when you talk about the co- some of the complex passing concepts they run, uh, some of the stuff they do, you know, just communicating, uh, even line of scrimmage stuff. There's, there's a lot that goes into quarterbacking a Ryan Day offense or what will now be a Ryan Day and Bill O'Brien offense. So th- it takes more than a year to get the experience necessary to be a steady hand coming off the bench, guiding that sort of thing. And so I, you do wonder how much the reps are going to determine whether guys stick around. I don't know if you say, hey, Devin, you're the clear backup. Like, how, how, how appealing is that? You know, you're not, you're not going to be the starter over Will Howard, or maybe they'll compete, but how much does Ryan Day 
split up those reps. Even the first team reps could be interesting. I mean, it, we've seen in the past Ryan take a while to name his starter. Uh, does Will Howard have to compete for the job for a little bit? Is he the guy right away? You know, just what is the strategy there in terms of even first team reps, but the second team reps too, like you said, are going to be incredibly interesting. And does do you give that to the guy who you would actually like to be your backup this year? Probably a Devin Brown or a Lincoln Keenholz who have some experience in the offense, or are you giving it to a guy that you're trying to develop for 2025, you know, knowing that you have Will Howard as the starter this year. So uh, that's just, um, it's an excellent storyline to watch. You know, I think for now, this offense as well, it, is going to be dictated by Bill O'Brien. And we've seen him elevate quarterbacks in the past. We, we, we talked about needing the head coach of the offense. And I think, you know, Bill O'Brien, it's going to be interesting to see the dynamics in the spring. We expect him to be the play caller. We expect him to do what Jim Knowles has done with the defense in many ways, coming in with all the experience he has under Nick Saban, under Bill Belichick, you know, legends, right? It, it's... I'll be curious to see in this spring, you know, how much of it is Bill O'Brien's call, whether that's the quarterback reps, whether that's play calling early on in the spring game, those kinds of things. And again, we expect Bill O'Brien to have plenty of his plate so that it's taken off of Ryan days. We expect him to be the play caller. But does that come to fruition? And how much of this quarterback battle does he have? Not quarterback battle, quarterback rep division uh, does he have a say in? So um, I, I also think it kind of ties in with that offensive coordinating thing and, and this transition of delegating responsibilities for Ryan Day. Yeah, and that adds to the challenge for Devin and Lincoln, too, because now they've got to impress a new offensive coordinator and quarterback coach, you know, the guy who's going to be very involved in these decisions on the future of a quarterback room, you know, they, they've got to now, you know, they're, they're kind of starting at square one along with any, everybody else. So that they, they do still have, you know, experience of in the Ohio state offense, which the other guys don't, we don't expect that Bill O'Brien is going to come in and reinvent the Ohio state offense. We still expect that it's going to be Ryan Day's offensive system and so you know in that regard they do have an edge but they also are now starting at square one in terms of having to impress their new position coach and I mean in in, in some ways it's maybe not all a bad thing because I mean obviously they didn't do enough to impress Ryan Day that it didn't stop Ohio State from going out and getting Will Howard and Julian Sayan and so in some ways, it's a second chance for those guys this spring to show what they have and, and try to impress Bill O'Brien. But at the same time, you know, all five guys now, you know, they're all starting at the same place in terms of building a relationship with the new offense coordinator, the new quarterback coach. And I'm actually saying that the guy who actually probably has the closest relationship with them is the guy who just got there this week because Julian Sayan was recruited by Bill O'Brien when Bill O'Brien was Alabama's offensive coordinator. So Bill O'Brien's not a guy that was brought in to be a recruiter. He was brought in to be a play caller to, you know, lead the offensive coaching, much like Jim Knowles on the defensive side of the ball. But he is already making a significant impact as a recruiter because he's one reason why Julian Sayan wanted to come to Ohio State because he already had that existing relationship with Bill O'Brien from when Bill O'Brien was at Alabama. And so, you know, like you said, it's going to be interesting to see 
you know, how exactly that balance plays out. But I do expect that Bill O'Brien is going to be the guy making the offensive play calls in games this year. I don't think a guy with that background is coming to Ohio State to be just an offensive coordinator in title. He, he's coming to Ohio State to be an actual offensive coordinator who, who runs the show. And so I, I think that, you know, that's going to be a significant change for Ryan Day, assuming that plays out that way, because for his first five years as head coach, Ryan Day has been the guy calling the shots. But I also think we both agree that, you know, this is the right move for Ohio State, assuming Ryan Day goes through with that and giving up offensive play calling. I think we both agree that it was a necessary step at this point, not just because the offense took a step back last season, but also because head coaches just have so much more on their plate now than they used to with NIL, with the transfer portal, you know, with having to recruit your own roster every year. There's so many things that Ryan Day has to balance that he doesn't have the same amount of time he once did to devote to offensive game planning. Plus, I think just in terms of in-game management on Saturdays too, I think it's going to help because I think when, you know, we talked about some of the, you know, being aggressive and, and making certain in-game decisions. When, when you are running the offense yourself, you can't be fully focused on all the elements of a game that are usually determined by a head coach. If you can now trust Bill O'Brien to lead the offensive play calling, I mean, Ryan Day's still going still gonna to have a hand in that. It's not like Ryan Day is going to turn off the headset when the offense is out there and he's going to just let Bill O'Brien do do everything with no input. Ryan Day is still going to be heavily involved in those conversations. But if he can delegate to to Bill O'Brien being the guy who who calls the shot, who picks the play each time, that will free up Ryan Day to then be able to focus more on clock management, game situation kind of stuff. The stuff that is supposed to be on a head coach's plate. And so I think this is a positive development for Ohio State. There have been mixed reviews, I think, to the Bill O'Brien hire. I don't think that everybody loves this hire. Um, I think, obviously, the fact that the New England Patriots offense was terrible last season with Bill O'Brien as the offensive coordinator plays a part in that. But personally, I think it's a good hire. I mean, I think you, you talk about the qualifications. When we talked about what Ohio State would be looking for in this position, I think some of the traits we identified were, you know, somebody who has experience running an offense and coaching quarterbacks, ideally somebody who had that experience at the NFL level. And I think if you add the added bonus of someone who's also been a head coach, I think all of those things are really good attributes for this position, especially if you want him to be a quote unquote head coach of the offense much like they've considered Jim Knowles to be a quote-unquote head coach of the defense because you just look at what's on his resume. I mean, they weren't going to find anyone else for this position who could say they were both a head coach and an offensive coordinator in both the NFL and college, has extensive experience coaching quarterbacks, and even has experience in the Big Ten from his two years as Penn State's head coach. 
No, I think it was definitely at least a good hire for Ryan Day. Um, you know, I think the results will bear out whether it was a great hire. And, and you know, some of those offensive struggles, you know, lend credence to the fact that, you know, there is there, there it hasn't been, all been smooth sailing for Bill O'Brien. Although, like you said, there were some talent deficiencies on those Patriots teams. I mean, they haven't done a good job drafting offensive players, you know, in the last several years, um, building an offense that is viable in the NFL in terms of personnel. Um, you know, it, it just, I mean, you go back to the famous drafting of Cole Strange in the first round at guard and, uh, you know, a guy who was projected to be a third or fourth rounder and he's not even a skill guy, and you know, kind of a head scratcher from fans. There's been, there, there's been some personnel mismanagement there in, in New England that has to do with that offense, but it's still on the coordinator to, to alleviate some of those issues at least. Um, Still, you know, he, he's also had some very successful offenses looking back at Alabama, you know, leading Bryce Young to a Heisman trophy. And uh, he's shown that he can really elevate college quarterback play since he came back from his first stint in the NFL with the Patriots in the late aughts and early 2010s to be Penn State's head coach for two years. I mean, Matt McGloin, who had been the starter there for two seasons prior to Bill O'Brien's arrival, has his best season far and away as a senior. And then the next year, second and final for O'Brien at Penn State. And this is all in the wake of the Jerry Sandusky scandal, by the way. Uh, Christian Hackenberg has his best season um, in a season that built a lot of the hype that never came to fruition for his career in general, good old Christian Sackenberg, he had his best season as a freshman. So he did it both with an experienced guy who hadn't reached that level before and a guy who would never reach that level again at Penn State. And then obviously what he did with Bryce Young, right? Bryce won a Heisman, broke all of Alabama's school passing sing single season records uh, there in 2021. And then in 2022, had another great year, although he threw the ball less so the numbers weren't as gaudy, um, but still did a great job elevating quarterback play. I think that's one thing you know you're getting with O'Brien, and that's good. You know, Ryan Day has already got that developmental track record with quarterbacks, but allows him to take more of that step back, trust Bill O'Brien to get Will Howard to where he needs to be this season, and, and focus on more of those CEO things. Another thing I wanted to bring up to your point about game day coaching, Dan, is that Ohio State didn't have either Day or Hartline in the box this year in the coach's booth. Um, and it's good. Hartline, obviously, you mean. Yeah, yeah, yes. It would the, be a little weird if Ryan Day was up in the box coaching unless he was going to do like the Hugh Freeze hospital bed. <laughs> yes, yes. What I'm saying is Ohio <laughs> State didn't have either of its play callers in the booth this year. Obviously, Ryan Day is not going to be in the booth. Brian Hartline is, you know, he, he's a sideline coach through and through. His presence there, uh, coaching guys up is very valuable. And so uh, they didn't have that other than, you know, maybe analysts like Joe Philbin, they didn't have that booth presence this year to have the eagle eyes look down and see the whole picture, the all 22 of what's going on on the offensive side. And I think it's important to have that perspective from one of your play callers, you know, and O'Brien, you know, obviously not confirmed this early on whether he'll be in the booth or on the sideline, but I imagine he's more of a fit for the booth um, yeah. and can, and can have that eagle eyed perspective and, that's a little extra wrinkle to offensive play calling that's valuable um, that I think might be underrated about this move uh, and putting O'Brien in the box potentially. But overall, I again think this is a good quality hire for Ohio State potential to be a great hire pending offensive results this year. They 
need to go out and get another tackle if they can, like we've discussed. Although, and you know, we're still waiting to see O'Brien if any other offensive staff changes might be made in the wake of this, because you know it was reported before that Ohio State is looking to bring in Bill O'Brien and have him evaluate the offensive coaching staff. So there still could be moves made in that area. But then once we hit the spring, obviously it's 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 all going to be about seeing what this offense looks like, seeing what the balance of power is in terms of influence from Ryan Day to Bill O'Brien, although we expect, obviously, Bill to have the offensive play calling um, on his plate and much of the scheme, though, uh, you know, still expect Ryan Day to have some input because it is still his his team and he's an offensive coach. Yeah, I mean, should clarify, too, but I mean, Corey Dennis and Keenan Bailey were both in the booth last year, so it wasn't like they didn't have any uh, right. full-time assistant coaches. Like you said, they didn't have a coordinator or a senior member of a staff up there. And I think, you know, we talked about the potential influence of Kevin Wilson leaving the staff and what that might have had on the offense last year. I think O'Brien can bring some of those similar qualities to what you had from Kevin Wilson, who did coach up in the box in terms of, again, a former head coach, an experienced offensive coordinator, you know, somebody who you know, just has a lot of experience in those roles. And I think to have him up in the booth, I agree that that would make a lot of sense because you you still have Ryan Day on the sideline who can communicate with the quarterbacks as, you know, he's going to do regardless. But to have O'Brien up in the booth coaching from up there and then having Day and Hartline to communicate with the players on the sideline, um, you know, along with, you know, Tony Alford, Justin Fry, assuming they keep the staff uh, mostly intact, which I mean, again, we haven't, heard of any imminent staff changes at this point. I mean, it sounds like Corey Dennis is going to continue to have a role within the program as well, not as one of the 10 assistant coaches, but likely in some kind of analyst, special assistant kind of role. And I think, you know, we talked about recruiting, you know, maybe not being what Bill O'Brien's being brought in for. I imagine that's one factor in keeping Corey Dennis involved in the program too, because he has done well as a recruiter, I think it was well agreed that they needed somebody a little bit more experienced in terms of coaching quarterbacks if to take some of that responsibility off Ryan Day's plate. But Corey Dennis has done good things as a recruiter, and so keeping him in the program can be a positive in that regard. And you know what else can be a positive in that regard is it doesn't hurt when Bill O'Brien can go to a quarterback and say, you know, I coached Tom Brady for five years. You know, uh, Tom, Tom Brady had some of his <laughs> best passing seasons when I was his quarterback. I mean, we, we, we've joked about it some off air about how, you know, Tim Walton has talked a lot to recruits about Jalen Ramsey coaching Jalen Ramsey. Well, it's working because look at what Tim Walton is doing on the recruiting trail right now. I mean, bringing in, he was a, played a leading role in bringing in Caleb Downs, what he's done with recruiting that cornerback position. Uh, you know, that stuff holds weights with players. And so the fact that Bill O'Brien can go to a quarterback recruit and say, I coach Tom Brady, and I coach Bryce Young to a Heisman Trophy. Those things hold weight with players too. And so just to have that on his track record certainly is not going to hurt Ohio State. No, I, I wouldn't think so. And, uh, you know, this... The recruiting side of things is something that O'Brien obviously has experience with, having coached at Penn State uh, when he did and uh, doing what he did with Alabama. You know, he's got plenty of recruiting experience at the collegiate level. Uh, he was a big reason, like we said before, that uh, Ohio State brought in Julian Sam. But just, I mean, circling back to Tim Walton for a moment, what a crazy run, you know, that he's been on, huh? After, after landing 
the class he landed in 2023 uh, between Bryce West and Aaron Scott Jr. after landing one of the best corners in the class of 2025, sorry, 2024 for Bryce West and Aaron Scott Jr., 2025, Devin Sanchez. Now he was instrumental in getting Caleb Downs for Ohio State, the existing relationship he had there, and really it seemed like was much of the driving force. And you can even look at social media for, you know, proof of that from Mark Pantone and the Ohio state football Twitter tweeting the, the very funny, like goat memes about him where it's the binoculars. And you can't quite see it's a goat. And then it's Tim Walton. He's, he's been on a crazy run here um, and, and selling that vision and his development and what he's turned these Ohio state corners into look, having the number one pass defense in college football in 2023. So there it's been an incredible run for Tim. Walton and that kind of goes in with this discussion of what Ohio State's coaching staff is and, and what you know they have going forward uh, with this defense with these transfers. Tim Walton's a guy that has really emerged as the best recruiter on staff outside Brian Hartline in the, in these last few months and and as as uh, a similar caliber in terms of developing those guys, which you know they kind of go hand in hand because guys see the development then they want to come play for you. Yeah, and you kind of see that alignment now with the staff. Like, I think on offense and defense, like, you've got your Brian Hartline and your Tim Walton. Like, these are just elite position coaches, elite recruiters in senior roles. You know, you have O'Brien and Jim Knowles, who are the senior coordinators leading them on that side of a ball, you know? And then, you know, you've got, I mean, you obviously, I don't know that you... I guess you could probably you could probably draw the analogy between Tony Alford and Larry Johnson of how long they've both been around in terms of their just kind of being another senior presence on the coaching staff on both sides of the ball. And then, you know, having, you know, some younger younger coaches, you know, you know, Justin Fry maybe not as young as a Keenan Bailey, but having, you know, some younger coaches like Keenan Bailey, uh, Matt Guerrero on the defensive side of a ball. Uh, to potentially be joined by a, a, a James Laurinaitis, another young coach, or whoever they decide to bring in on the def- defensive line. So I think the, the balance of the staff right now, you know, assuming they add another defensive coach, we'll have to see what they ultimately do about replacing Parker Fleming on special teams. But I think the balance of the staff right now, uh, I, I think it's in a good place. I'd agree. Uh, and, you know, I, I again, you weigh the future and what you exactly want to do with that open spot and maybe evaluating again. Bill O'Brien is going to come in and have a chance to evaluate the offensive coaches. But I, I the balance of it, like you said, is really good for Ohio State. Um, what they have uh, on both sides of the ball in terms of having, you know, at least one ace recruiter on both sides, having that senior um, overseer, that sort of head coach of the offense slash defense, as you said, uh, just a lot of great um, all around coaching staff uh, hires that Ryan Day has made over the past few years and um, taking an introspective look at his program and addressing some of the things that needed addressed, getting, you know, having Parker letting go of Parker Fleming this offseason and doing some of those things that uh, really needed done. I, I think that's a credit. Day has done something. Day has done that throughout a lot of his career. Uh, even when you look back and uh, getting Jim Knowles in the first place, letting go Kerry Combs, doing some of the things that you know he's always had a good ability to look into his program 
address the hires that need to be made. Um, and he's gotten, again, he's made a lot of good hires. When you look at Tim Walton, uh, the first year it looks shaky. Now everyone's everyone's through the roof, over the moon about Tim Walton. And uh, yeah, just a, a really great coaching staff that he's assembled um, in a lot of ways. Although there's still maybe a position or two that you look at. And again, we'll, we'll evaluate um, on the offensive side of the ball with with Bill O'Brien. But I mean, overall, Dan, this has just been what a run it's been the last few weeks as now it kind of starts to settle down a little bit. Finally, I don't think we're really expecting any more transfer additions, uh, either from the Alabama or Washington side of things. Um, I thought that, you know, Ohio state might make a push at some point for either, uh, Julius Bulow or, uh, Nate Kalepo there, but not, doesn't seem to really be much, um, bet- going on between the two sides. As far as Washington's offensive linemen go, obviously Caden Proctor already went to Iowa out of Alabama. So it doesn't seem like Ohio state's going to make any more transfer portal additions, um, from those rosters, obviously the first window already closed. So it, it's, it's, I think as we sit back and we look at what this offseason has been for Ohio State, you, you went from the lowest of lows, how the season closed, um, losing to Missouri in the fashion you did in the Cotton Bowl. And overall, you might look back on it and say it sparked a lot of this change and ended up being a net positive for Ohio State. Ohio State, if they win that game, I mean, they hoist a trophy over their head. It doesn't really mean much to a lot of people because you've lost to Michigan three years in a row. I mean, it would have meant something to the players for sure, to the program. And, you know, I am a big believer in Bullwins building momentum, but this really the introspective change, especially on the offensive side that was needed uh, was kind of spurned on by it. The, the total lapse that happened against Missouri, I think, in some ways, and maybe spurned some of this aggression from Ohio State. Maybe the moves would have happened even if they did beat Missouri. I don't know. But either way, it's been an incredible few weeks of getting players back, adding through the portal, and making coaching staff adjustments for this Ohio State team. Yeah, it's an interesting what if scenario. You know, we'll we'll never know, Matt. Uh, but uh, certainly, it's the kind of response you would like to see from Ryan Day and the Ohio State football program after uh, the next the la- after that loss to, to respond the way they had in the subsequent three weeks. Uh, it certainly feels like Ohio State has momentum again. Um, and, and they certainly needed it after that cotton bowl loss. So, uh, credit to, you know, Ryan day and Ohio state for making that happen. And now, uh, you know, they're, they're in one workouts and that now's when the real work begins, right? I mean, now you've, you, you, you've made some, you know, important moves to, you know, set yourself up for success in 2024, but now there's a lot of work, uh, that needs to happen behind the scenes to actually get there. And, uh, you know, just a little bit, over a month away from the start of spring practice. We learned last week that the spring game will be on April 13. So I think uh, that the spring game may have more excitement than it usually does this year, just because of all these exciting new players that Ohio state has added. I think people are going to be looking forward to seeing Will Howard and Julian say and Caleb Downs and uh, Quinshad Judkins and Jeremiah Smith. Certainly uh, some of these players in Scarlet and gray for the first time. So 
we're certainly looking forward to that. But uh, before we get out of here, I wanted to touch on a couple other things. We did talk about Ross Bjork last week uh, being introduced as Ohio State's new athletic director, but the introductory press conference happened after last week's episode of Real Pod Wednesdays was published. And certainly, I think there were a couple of interesting things that came out of that. I think starting with what Ross Bjork said about Ryan Day, which he said, quote, he's going to get it done and it's going to be a lot of fun when we win those championships. So we've talked about this potentially being a make or break year for Ryan Day, so to speak. But the fact that Ryan Day or the fact that Ross Bjork came out and endorsed Day so strongly uh, would suggest that, you know, Ross Bjork is at least coming into this job with the idea that Ryan Day is going to continue to be Ohio State's head coach for a long time. That can change because we saw it at Texas A&M where he gave Jimbo Fisher one of the biggest coaching contracts in history and then fired him two years later. So things can certainly change if Ohio State does not achieve its goals. But Ross Bjork does seem to be coming in with a very optimistic view on Ryan Day. In terms of when he was asked about Chris Holtman, I would I would say his endorsement was not as strong. Uh, to quote him, he said, he seems like a great guy. He seems like he's doing a great job and then continued. So we've talked about how does he build chemistry and culture on the stretch run? You've got two and a half months left of a regular season or so. I know he's looking to finish strong. Reading between the lines, that would say to me that Holtman's future beyond this season depends on how Ohio State finishes this season. And I think something we didn't know when we recorded last week, but we learned Wednesday afternoon, but I think is very interesting in that conversation is the fact that Ross Bjork is going to be starting at Ohio State as a senior advisor in March. He won't become the actual athletic director until July, but he will be on the job working alongside Gene Smith in March. And you had made the point last week, Andy, that you weren't sure if Gene Smith would want to pull the trigger. But now that we know that Bjork is for sure going to be involved in those conversations, Whenever those conversations happen after the season ends at whatever point that might be in March or April, uh, the, the fact that Ross Bjork is going to be on campus and involved in those conversations, I mean, he is, his voice is certainly going to carry a lot of weight in those conversations considering he will be the one overseeing the athletic department next year. Uh, I, I think if I was Chris Holtman, I would look at that and say, I better perform the next two months or I might not be the the basketball coach at Ohio State next year. When Ross Bjork says that I know Chris Holtman wants to finish strong, to me, it reads he needs to finish strong, right? I think these next couple of months are really make or break. We've talked about it before, new athletic director coming in, and it's clear that Bjork has a very high standard for winning. um, And... I have him coming on as a senior advisor is going to allow him to evaluate exactly where Holtman's program is these next couple of months. And this is really a pivotal stretch for him um, and changing the results of what happened last year. You know, it's definitely like there's no reason to write off this team right now in terms of, well, there, there is reason to write off this team. What I mean is there, this is still very much a salvageable season for Ohio State. But you have to change the results that have happened previously. Uh, you know, that whole January, February, March narrative under Holtman, where 
they have not been able to close out seasons in the ways they want to. Even when they maybe have a successful close to the regular season, they get upset in the tournament. You know, of course, the famous 15-2 upset with Oral Roberts that happened a few years ago. This has to be a different year for Holtman. They have to achieve something, make a run, do something that gives you a little bit of faith, of belief that he's the guy to lead them forward. They have the talent. I think we've well established they have the talent on this roster. When you talk about bringing in back-to-back number eight recruiting classes, Jamison Battle has been a phenomenal addition in the transfer portal. They have the pieces for Chris to ride this out and have a great year. The Penn State win was needed on Saturday, but they you know, still have to deliver those results. And Chris has not been able to do that of late uh, these recent seasons. Will he be able to do it uh, this year? And it's probably going to make or break his job. Another thing that I thought was interesting from both Ross Bjork and Ted Carter in Wednesday's press conferences, that they were both, uh, you know, adamant that they intend to keep all 36 sports at Ohio state. But They also did both advocate for a new model in college sports, you know, without directly saying it, certainly implying at a model where schools directly share revenue with athletes. And I think it's going to be very interesting to see over the next, you know, five years or however this develops, is it truly going to be sustainable for Ohio State to continue to fund 36 sports? Because you look at the financial report that was just released on Tuesday that Ohio State submitted to the NCAA, football and men's basketball were the only Ohio State sports that made a profit. And, you know, as it currently stands, the surplus in revenue from those sports helps subsidize all the other 34 sports. But when you start sharing that revenue with the athletes, that's going to become a lot harder to do. And so I think it's, I mean, you know, I'm certainly somebody who, you know, supports, you know, all the other sports at Ohio State and wants to see, uh, you know, vote all of those sports, you know, be able to continue at Ohio State. But I, I do wonder just how is that math going to work out in the long run? I think it's a good thing that, that Ross Bjork and Ted Carter, Ted Carter being the new president of Ohio State, both seem to be forward thinking about the changes that are coming to college sports and wanting to embrace them rather than trying to deny them. Because we've seen NCAA leadership do that for too long in terms of changes coming to college sports. And it feels like, you know, if Charlie Baker coming in as the new NCAA president, that uh, that's starting to change and, and college athletics leaders are starting to look at this more proactively. And, you know, we've talked about the mess that happened with NIL. And that so much of that was because everybody dragged their feet on actually doing anything until the courts forced their hand and says, you have to allow players to be able to make money. And so there's going to come a point if the NCAA doesn't take proactive action, that the courts are going to force the schools to start sharing the revenue with the athletes. And so uh, it's a good thing that, you know, Ohio State's new leaders, both in, at, at the top of a university and at the top of the athletic department, are both thinking proactively about how uh, college sports are going to change. And I I think, you know, that's one reason why Ross Bjork was hired for this job, because I think they, they want somebody who is going to think proactively and progressively when it comes to changes in college sports, when it comes to NIL. And I think 
you know, that's that's a mindset that Ross Bjork is going to come in with, but Ohio State is probably going to need for the future of its athletic department. Yeah, we, we you know, we touched on it a little bit in, in our press coverage segment after that press conference. It's it, it is going to be really tough when you when you think about profit sharing and exactly how that model is going to work. I, I wonder if they can maybe sh- they'll probably structure it by sport in some regard, but if you're sharing revenue with all the athletes across all your varsity sports, it becomes so much more difficult because now you're having to give money where, you know, the unfortunate truth of the matter is that athlete is not making you money. And so you're, you're, you're taking a loss on every, you know, non-revenue Olympic sport athlete that you give a cut of that to. And again, I'm with you, Dan. I am a huge, huge proponent of having a lot of varsity sports. Sports are incredible, uh, even the smaller, more obscure ones, you know, that people that maybe don't get as much attention. Um, not just incredible to, to watch and to have an appreciation for and an admiration for, you know, I've, ever since I was a kid, I, I had, I, I love to look up the rules of different sports and just learn about them. But, you know, it's also for the people that play them and who coach them, you know, there's direct correlation between playing sports and having higher grades, playing sports and uh, less risk of, of drug abuse of, of a, a lot of different, you know, positive trends that go beyond the sport itself for young athletes. And, um, I, I think stripping somebody of their ability to play their selected sport, you know, maybe they'll pursue that opportunity somewhere else, but it gets harder as, you know, if this becomes an NCAA-wide thing, profit sharing, then, you know, more schools are going to have to cut programs. Even if it's not Ohio State, even if Ohio State finds a way to keep all 36, sports are going to be cut across the country, I think. And so as much as Ohio State can afford to sustain all 36 I would love to see it happen. I know you would love to see it happen. And, you know, I I think that should be one of the big directives of this profit sharing model is figuring out a way from, and again, this is national, speaking national now, figuring out a way to have it without compromising the other athletes in the athletic department that don't play football and basketball uh, and those sports. Now, a sport that did certainly see a boost in revenue over the weekend was women's basketball because Ohio State broke its attendance record for women's basketball as 18,660 people were at the Schottenstein Center to watch Ohio State play Iowa. And they sure got their money's worth because Ohio State uh, was down by 12 early in the fourth quarter, came back to force overtime, beating Iowa in overtime 100 to 92. Uh, those big crowds, certainly driven in large part by the appearance of Caitlin Clark, who, uh, you know, you, you, you say that she's the biggest star in women's college basketball, and I think that would be doing a disservice. She's the biggest star in college basketball right now. She really is. Like, I think if you asked the average sports fan to name a college basketball player, a lot more of them, I think, right now could name a women could name Caitlin Clark before they could name any men's player. I just don't think there's a men's player right now that has the kind of reach that she does. And some of that is because of the fact that in women's college basketball, stars like Caitlin Clark typically play for four years, whereas in men's college basketball, the biggest stars are usually one and done. And so that allows someone like a Caitlin Clark to build up her star in a way that is not happening right now on the men's side of a game. But Ohio State certainly bearing uh, fruit from that as Ohio State 
typically closes off the upper level of Bashatenstein Center for women's basketball games, but opened it up for this game uh, because of the demand for people to see Caitlin Clark. And uh, the people showed up and they created a spectacular environment. Uh, I think truly the best we've seen for any basketball game at, o- at Ohio State in years. Probably the, the most comparable one I can remember in recent years was against Duke uh, when Ohio State hosted Duke at home in 2021. And that one ended in similar fashion with uh, fans storming the court to celebrate with the team after the big win. And certainly an unfortunate uh, you know, side story of the game on Sunday ended up being the the collision that happened on the court after a game between uh you know an un- unidentified Ohio State fan and and Caitlin Clark took a lot of the national headlines and I, I think that's too bad because it was such a great game it was such a great environment I I think that aside it was such a great day for women's basketball in terms of uh, particularly in Columbus just in terms of you know, it it showed that, you know, the community will rally around this team if they're successful and, and they are successful. I mean, they're a team that went to the Elite Eight last year and, and this win now uh, moving Ohio State up to 12th in the country. Uh, you know, this is a team that hasn't started the year off quite as strong as it did last year when it was actually 19 and 0 before it suffered its first loss of the year to Iowa. But this win over an Iowa team that came in ranked number two in the country over a superstar in Caitlin Clark, even on a day where she scored 45 points, uh, I think that shows that, you know, this is still a team that has final four potential. And it was really great to see the support they received on Sunday and just to see how into it people were because I, I, I had not personally seen. A, a crowd like that for an Ohio State women's basketball game. Yeah, you know, that's the kind of stark power that Caitlin Clark brings out. But you wrote a great story about it, uh, Dan, that, you know, this could be a springboard for the women's basketball team um, going forward and uh, really trying to accomplish some of those goals, uh, trying to, you know, make a run to the Big Ten tournament again, maybe even win it this time. Who's to say, you know, do doing some of the things that, you know, they have the talent to do with with the pieces that they have on this team. Um, it's, it's a really exciting time in Ohio State women's basketball uh, coming off of this win. Uh, you know, going back to the, the Caitlin Clark incident, too, and, you know, don't want to spend too much time uh, beating down on it, but it's been wild to see just people, I guess, saying that she faked it, saying that, um, you know, she flopped, I guess, slowing it down, like super slow-mo on Twitter. Oh, she extended the arms. Oh, my. So, Caitlin specifically said and she did fall to the ground weird here's why after the game she said specifically that the wind was knocked out of her now i don't know if you've ever had the wind knocked out of you dan i have three times once in sixth grade twice when i was playing high school football and the thing when you get the wind knocked out of you is like it actually knocks all the air out of your lungs and you can't breathe for a minute it's really scary it's really scary and Almost everyone I've ever seen get the wind knocked out of them, and including me, falls to the ground immediately, and maybe in a weird way because it like it shocks you. You're not expecting it because you just get hit in the chest, which you can very clearly see she does. It was like a shoulder to chest collision. She gets hit in the chest, so it's hard to breathe for a minute, and she falls to the ground trying to catch her breath. 
her teammates, security personnel help her up to the feet and escort her to the locker room. But the other thing that gets, why would Caitlin Clark lie about this? Uh, people are saying it's because she's bitter about the loss. And like, who cares? I, she's lost games before. She's a competitor. She knows what comes with the territory. She didn't even seem that upset about it after the game. Like, it, it's, it's bewildering to me. People slow this down and they take an alternate angle of it and they say, oh, she, she extended the arms. It didn't make enough of an effort to avoid the person. Look, we don't need to make a bigger deal out of this than what it was. These are two people that were running in opposite directions, saw each other at the last second, tried to avoid each other, really couldn't. It was a bit late. Caitlin Clark takes a shoulder to the chest and she gets the wind knocked out of her. And, you know, Ohio State maybe needed to do a better job of security. You know, Caitlin Clark did run out in front of her team a little bit. And, you know, that's it, it's hard to maybe keep contained some things in those situations. But Ohio State could certainly have done a better job protecting the players in that instance. Um, I, I just think it's ludicrous to say that she flopped or was faking it or some other like thing that it's her fault. And it's it's just it it baffles me, and so I wanted to say my piece about that. Really, yeah. I mean, I I think you know to 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 try to shift the responsibility onto Caitlin Clark to avoid a collision with a person running onto the court as she's leaving the court of play is ridiculous. So I think we both agree on that. And I think you know ultimately, again, I just go back to I just. You know, I think back to the national championship game last year, too, where, again, phenomenal game between LSU and Iowa. And then the discourse after the game becomes, was it okay for Angel Reese to taunt Caitlin Clark with something Caitlin Clark had already done? It's unfortunate because it feels to me like, I mean, women's basketball, I I, I just saw the stat here, like, literally a minute ago as we're recording, that the Iowa-Ohio State game on Sunday was the most watched regular season women's college basketball game since 2010 on any TV network. So, women's basketball is growing. Like, it's a a good time for women's basketball. We just saw the NCAA, uh, you know, sign a new deal with ESPN for its championships that included women's basketball. There was a massive increase in in dollar amount from the previous contract. And women's basketball, along with some other sports like softball, are, are, are really drove that revenue increase. So it is a good time for women's college basketball. But I, I do think it's unfortunate that it feels like whenever there's a big game, there has to be some side story that people then focus more on the side story than they do the fact that this was a great game. It was an accident. I think Ohio State needs to and is reviewing its protocols for how to handle situations like that. And I would suspect that the next time there's a game of that magnitude where Ohio State you know, can anticipate the possibility of that kind of on-court celebration that there will be extra security measures in place to make sure that doesn't happen again. Gene Smith went to Caitlin Clark, went to Lisa Bluter, uh, to apologize after the game. So I think it's something we should all we should all be able to move on from at this point. It's not something that needs to be belabored over and over again. But I just think it's unfortunate that it had to take away from such a great game, such a great showcase for women's basketball and what I think was really uh, you know, a, a great day for the Ohio State women's basketball team. 
Yeah, absolutely. You know, and the great performances in that game from Cody McMahon from, you know, Caitlin too had a phenomenal, played phenomenal in the loss, um, you know, in the overtime and just all, all the stuff that went into to what was an amazing game, an amazing environment. And, and like you said, a, a great day for women's basketball overall, college women's basketball. And uh yeah, um, to, to have to sit there and have people dissecting slow-mo replays and, and trying to assign blame and do all this, it's like, yeah, you wish it didn't overshadow all of that. Well, certainly lots to talk about on this week's episode of Real Pod Wednesdays. We, we, we feel like probably the craziness of a football offseason is mostly behind us at this point, but you never know what could happen you know, over the next week, over the next month, as uh, we continue to count down toward spring football. So uh, we will certainly be back next week to talk about uh, everything that's going on in Ohio State football and Ohio State sports at large. And we hope you'll join us then.